Over the past couple of weeks, we've been walking through this four-part installment on the Kerygma, and we've spent a lot of time talking about the first three chapters of Genesis. Creation accounts and the accounts of mankind's fall and its consequences. But today, I want to begin by turning to the second book of the Bible, rather than the first, Exodus. The events described in Exodus are the foundational events of the people, God's chosen people, Israel. Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and they were freed by none other than God himself, by God's miraculous, dramatic interventions in history on multiple occasions to bring them out of slavery in Egypt and ultimately into the promised land. But the events of Exodus are not only the foundational events and the people of Israel. They also foreshadow and point forward that God will save us from an even greater slavery, not the physical slavery Israel experienced under Pharaoh, and spiritual slavery to sin, death, and the devil. We see this echoed in our first reading from the prophet Isaiah when he says, Be strong, fear not, here is your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. So today we rejoice on this Gaudate Sunday, this third Sunday in Advent. For the Lord is near and he is coming to save us. He himself will become like a man, be, excuse me, will become a man like us in all things but sin when he's born of a virgin on Christmas Day. And he will become a man to save us from the darkness and gloom of sin. Father John Ricardo is where... Uh, we got the idea of, of preaching the Kerygma in four installments. He, he preached to the priests of the Archdiocese on a retreat this past June. And he is fond of drawing the comparison between Christmas and D-Day. He said the Allied forces, they didn't land on D-Day to see the sights or to drink coffee in the cafes of Paris. They came to fight and to liberate. So it is with Christ. He comes to fight, to liberate us from sin, death, and the devil. Now, I could imagine somebody objecting to this, saying if he fights, it's a pretty strange way of fighting. I mean, he fights by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it's a fair point. I mean, we all, we profess at Mass every, every time we celebrate it, that by his cross and resurrection, he sets us free. And how do we traditionally speak of Christ's cross and the power that comes from it? We say that on the cross, Christ offers to God something that God the Father loves infinitely more than sin displeases him, his only begotten Son. So Christ on the cross is offering a sacrifice that superabundantly atones for our sins. Passion is Christ's greatest act of love, the greatest revelation of the heart of God in the glory of Christ, because he loved us to the end, as we hear in John 13. He knew and he loved us all, even before we were born, even before we existed. And he offered his life for us. He died not for an anonymous mass of humanity, people in general, but for individuals. He knew us, loved us, offered himself for us. And so we've always talked about the passion with words like love and sacrifice, atonement and satisfaction, redemption, reparation. And they very adequately 
elucidate the mystery of the cross. But they don't exhaust the mystery of the cross. There are other ways in our tradition of speaking about how the cross works. In Father Ricardo, to go back to him, he has spoken a lot about this idea of Christ as an ambush predator. Now, the fathers didn't talk about Christ as an ambush predator, but they had a very similar concept. An ambush predator is a predator who lies in wait, camouflage, hiding for prey. Then when the time is right, ambushes the prey. You know, for example, a deer hunter in a tree stand is an ambush predator. Camouflaged, hopefully quiet, waiting, and when the time right, ambushes the deer. So how is Christ an ambush predator? How is it that on the cross he is the hunter, the aggressor, rather than the hunted? Christ, to all appearances, looked to have lost and been defeated on Good Friday. He died, he gave up his spirit, but then death could not hold him. He broke the prison bars of death. He wins the grace that enables us to once again be the friends of God and the inheritors of heaven. When I said the fathers of the church, they, they had a similar concept. They thought of Christ dying like, uh, you know, when, when Christ dying, they likened it to a fish taking the bait on a hook. Only the bait on the hook, the fish bites, and that the fish gets reeled in. So the devil, when Christ died, celebrated thinking perhaps he won, only to have his kingdom plundered. It's an interesting way to speak about the cross. It's probably not ever going to be my go-to way of preaching about the cross or speaking about it, but it does speak to some dynamics that are at play there. But regardless, for me, the really astounding fact about God's saving action is this. At least according to St. Thomas Aquinas, it was not absolutely necessary. God in his omnipotent power could have restored us in many other ways. Nothing is impossible for God could have simply forgiven our first parents, Adam and Eve, and restored them to paradise if he so wanted. Somebody could say, well, what about the devil? Didn't Christ need to conquer the devil? Not really. God is God, and the devil's a creature, and he's no match for the Almighty. Yet St. Thomas says that while it wasn't absolutely necessary, the cross wasn't absolutely necessary, it was the most fitting, the most appropriate, the best way to redeem us. And he gives five reasons why that is. I'm only going to give one, the first one. Because it shows us precisely how much God loves us and inspires us to love him in return. So this means, because of the cross, that when we say something like, God loves you, it's not a cliche, it's not an empty phrase made, said to make us feel better. Look at the crucifix. I don't care what you may have done in life. I don't care how many times you may have fallen. I don't care how ashamed you are at, at, at having fallen. The crucifix tells us that you are worth the trouble to him. He not only created you out of his goodness and love, but when we were lost to sin, he moved heaven and earth to save us. Not, anonymous, not an anonymous mass of people, but individuals. He went to the cross out of love for you and for me so that we might not experience eternal death but eternal life. So how should we respond to this tremendous divine love and goodness? That is the fourth and final part of this homiletic series on the curriculum. That will be next week. In the meantime, though, let us rejoice, for the Lord our Savior is near, and he comes to 
save us, to rescue us. Let us intensify our efforts to spiritually prepare for Christmas and these final two weeks of Advent so that we can welcome Christ anew into our hearts and souls on December 25th.